Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. We're here at the Union for Reform Judaism 2017 Biennial, and it is my great pleasure to welcome to the Bully Pulpit Podcast, Rabbi Joshua Fagelson. Rabbi Fagelson is Dean of Students at the University of Chicago Divinity School, my alma mater, and he previously served as the Hillel Rabbi for Northwestern University across town. And he is the founder of Ask Big Questions, a Hillel program designed to bring reflective conversations to college campuses. Rabbi Fagelson, welcome to the Bully Pulpit. Great to be here. Thank you. I'd like to start off by talking about Ask Big Questions because that seems to have been your breakout program (laughs) that really put you on the map. Uh And so I want to start with what's the power of questions? I'll, I'll tell you how I would start reflecting on that by means of how we sort of stumbled on ask big questions, and and some of your listeners may hear this story in, in other settings, but it bears repeating. When I came to Northwestern in 2005, I had just um, finished rabbinical school at Yeshiva Atchavah My second child had just been born a couple weeks before. It's the summertime. I'm pushing a baby carriage around campus, and I'm thinking, as all rabbis do in the summertime, high holidays are coming. What are we going to do? And there's a spot on Northwestern's campus where Sheridan Road and Chicago Avenue meet up, and there's this archway, and inside the archway, you have the fraternities and sororities and theater groups, they hang up these painted sheets announcing their upcoming events. And this is like on many, many undergraduate campuses, right? So you've got, you know, Thursday night, Midsummer Night's Dream, Friday night, big party at Sigma Chi, so I figure we'll put out a painted sheet that says, Saturday, Yom Kippur, repent. (laughs) Then funny thing happens on the way to Yom Kippur, I figure out two things. Number one... We don't just have to make a painted sheet. We can go to Kinko's and get a nice band. <laughs> and number two, intuitively, I was like, we shouldn't just make an announcement. We should put a question on here to sort of extend the educational environment, as it were. It's just more engaging. So it's like, what's the question? Well, what will you do better this year? Great. Like, that's, again, sort of just intuitive. Basic question of chuva, high holidays, that's what it's about. We put little ideas of things you could do better, you know, donate blood, drink fair trade coffee, vote, call your parents. And this amazing thing happened. The response to that was really quite something. People came up to me afterwards. Students came up after services and were like, I saw your banner for Hillel. And we we put Hillel's name in it. We saw your banner. My friend and I were walking along one in this great conversation about what we would do better next year. You should make more banners. So we started making more banners with more questions. And they were tied to sort of the themes of the year. At Thanksgiving, what are you thankful for? During fraternity and sorority rush, who's in your community, et cetera. And it sort of snowballed. And, and there clearly was, we were tapping into some sort of energy, hunger that people had, that students had, to talk about questions like these and to sort of be invited into a conversation about these kinds of questions. And it grew, and, and, and I can talk more about sort of how it grew, but ultimately it turned into a national program and you know this basic idea could you craft questions and put them out for people in as invitations into conversations about questions about matters that we all share as human beings that don't require a particular expertise don't need a PhD from the University of Chicago don't need to be a corporate CEO don't need to have lived X Y or Z experience but just by virtue of being a human being with a body who spent more than 10 minutes on the planet you have a meaningful story 
to share about that. And what results from those questions and those conversations, we've been able to actually measure as increases in connection, sense of belonging, um, trust, right? All things that you, that these are the building blocks of community. If, if I were to have answered my own question to you in the context of the academy at the Hebrew Union College or the University of Chicago, I would have said that the power of questions is to elicit a kind of intellectual, uh, it's like getting into gear intellectually. It forces you to, to focus your thoughts and, and come up with ideas. But, but the stories you're telling me seem to draw on a different wellspring. Yeah. It's more about the question as an invitation. And that, that invitation is tremendously... <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, let's, let's do some work on, like, what are... Not all questions are created equal. Yeah. Different questions serve different purposes. And it's really interesting that I think that, by and large, my wife is, is trained as a journalist. She's a novelist. But um, her original training is a, as a journalist. And so she was taught to think about questions in a particular way, like how to elicit certain information or certain kinds of stories, right? And so she crafts, or lawyers sort of craft their questions. Most of the rest of us don't pay, I think we don't pay that all that much attention to what kind of questions we ask. And so, you know, often I'll get, you know, oh, it's, of course, you know, a rabbi is going to start this because Jews are about questions. Truth is, the most famous questioner in Western history is Socrates, not a Jew. Socrates wasn't Jewish? (laughs) (laughs) Last I checked. (laughs) But so so what what do we mean by questions? And, And I think this is where my academic interest is, is really in the intersection of American higher education and American Jews, American Jewish life for many, many reasons, but I think that's a very important and largely unexcavated history. And one of, the, one of the things that I think is really important to think about is that, generally speaking, one of the things that we're witnessing today is that I think liberal education in particular has lost a part of its heritage and a tradition of questioning. If you think of liberal education as fundamentally about two types of, two fundamental questions, what's here and what's not here. Right? What's not here is sort of questions of critique, critical questions, suspicion. Right? Let's ask who's not in the room? What's the agenda of the writer? How might this have come about? What are the other forces that are at work, et cetera, et cetera? You're always asking what's behind the curtain. But then there's a question of what is here. What do we appreciate about what actually is here, or who is here, or who's in the room? And I think that that tradition of appreciative questions has largely been devoured <laughs> by, by the critical questions. And we need to restore that. I'm not arguing that one needs to replace the other. You need both of them to be healthy. And it's as basic, I would say, as breathing. Um, we need to constantly be working both, both of those types of questions. And presumably they strengthen one another when they're both done exactly. vigorously. Mm-hmm. One of the themes that emerges from your work is not just the invitation nor the intellectual vibrancy that questions help generate. But you've also made a point of talking about civil discourse, mm-hmm. civility, presumably in the, in the presence of disagreement where mm-hmm. you need it. So now direct your comments, if you would, to how it is that the orientation, maybe even the spirit of questioning, promotes civility, and, and, and maybe by sharing a contrast with us about what, 
what it looks like when yeah. it's not civil and not questioning. There's clearly more urgency around this question since the 2016 election, but there's also there was plenty of <laughs> there's plenty of canaries in the coal mine earlier. And I think actually one place we can look is actually right in our own tradition from a part of the Passover Seder that most of us are pretty familiar with, I think, which is the four children, right? Every year we come back to this text, and, you know, one classic question that a lot of people ask, what makes the Rasha, the wicked son, what makes that son wicked? Especially because the answer that's given to that child is, you know, maha avodah hazod lachem, what does this service mean to you? Lachem velolo, right? To you and not to him. And so then, you, you know, you answer him that if he had been, he, since he excluded himself he from excluded the community. Himself. But if you look at the chacham, who's right before him, he also talks in the second person in terms of lachem, right? So why, why, why do we have one reaction to the chacham, or certainly don't, hit him in the teeth, right. and the other action to the Rasha. There's a wonderful uh, 20th century rabbi, Yitzchak Hutner, wrote a work called the Pachet Yitzchak, and he, and he takes this up, and he, he beautifully sort of elaborates on what you don't see there is a question of tone, right? And how are, how are those questions asked? I would also then add, what's the response to those questions? But let's first let ask, let's look, right. at, look at how they're asked. And you can ask, especially in the age of social media, where tone disappears, or is very, very hard to discern, the same question right. Right, can it, appear in two it, totally it different the dimensionality of other, the, right. uh, you know, other cues, you can flatten it out. And so I think one of the key pieces is not even so much in the technical structure of a question, though that's really important, and you know, I've done a lot of work in thinking about that. But it's also in what is the medium and what's the, what's the trust, so what's the level of trust environment? That you know, in which those questions are being asked, and when people are sitting face to face, or even just when there's you know they're talking on the phone, um, the level of trust that's present is so much higher. Like email is a fundamentally passive aggressive means of communication. <laughs> it is made to be. It is the bane of the existence of any academic administrator. Yeah, right? right? Well, you yeah, you will agree with that, that, right? A lot can be written into it. Yeah. Yes, and so if you can get people to to talk to one another you can pay a lot less attention necessarily to some, to some of the structured questions. But then there's a question of, you know, in terms of civil discourse, that's related to, do we relate to people as abstractions or do we relate to them as, as human beings? Right? And again, this is all about sort of rehumanizing people with each other, not allowing ourselves to become abstractions to one another. You can take that from what we know about the Holocaust or anything else, but like at the root of like any of the civil discourse work, it's how do you create an environment where people can come together as human beings, not have to represent anything else, but they do need to actually be able to imagine themselves into a community together. And what is it about the question? I get the presence, I get the tone. Mm -hmm. I get, I get all of the trappings of the question that matter and why they matter and why presence is so key. Yeah. But what is it intrinsically about the nature of a question that promotes civility? Some questions do not, right? Should a pedophile be elected to the United States Senate? That's not exactly the way to ask a question that's going to promote civility. But if you then look at who represents you, Right? How could I, if, if I were taking that issue, a lot of the work that we do at Aspect Questions is how do you go from issues to questions and find especially those questions that can be underlying, that get to the narratives and the values that really matter to us in the moment. And so 
I would say, you know, here's a question. Who represents you? And let's work our way into that. But let's start, like, for, for instance, I might start with, when you think about someone who represents you, who you feel really good about, who, who's a person who comes to mind? And somebody might say Barack Obama, and somebody might say my mom or whoever, right? What's really at stake about the, about the Roy Moore question is, what do we imagine about who we trust to represent us, right? And so if we can then get down to a level of, we all have to be represented. We're all represented all the time by other people. So let's talk about, in, in ways that are depoliticized, what it, what it feels like to us to be represented or to be misrepresented, right? Has there ever been a time that you've been misrepresented or you felt like someone was representing you that you weren't happy about? And what did that feel like? And we can work our way back. All of us have an answer to that. And we can listen to each other on that level. And then we can sort of, we can use the trust that's built from asking questions in that way, and then use that in the service of, so now when you think about what's important in a senator, right, what's important to you, right? How do you decide who to vote for? You know, it may be that somebody actually articulates, I totally understand that this person is a really, really flawed individual, but here's my rationale. And you still, we still, we're not going to convince each other. That's not right, the point. Not but the point is to get closer to your. To but the point is the not issue. to kill each other, right? And right. that's that's right. like, frankly, like where we're at. You know, like we're we're really right. concerned about. Um, right. That's what we. That's what civility means. Civility just civility does not mean politeness, right? Civility means the ability to live together. That's right. what we're. Yeah, it doesn't mean politeness, nor does it mean proximity of position. No. nor even approximation of position. You don't move necessarily closer to your adversary or your interlocutor. Mm -hmm. It's that the distance that you have to cover, you cover in a better way. Yeah, that, that, we, that we are able to maintain a humanization, right? a level of humanity and, sh and shared humanity through that. That's what's, that's what's necessary, and our tradition teaches us that. Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. All right. So I think you and I would agree, it seems from your comments, that this is an urgent question because from the top down, from the highest echelons of our government and Congress down to, as, as we've seen in Charlottesville and in other places in America, we are lacking civility. We are we're talking in ways that are really at rather than with one another. Is there a time, are there conditions when that's really called for, when it's, when what's not called for is the, you didn't use the word, but you implied it, the empathy mm -hmm. and the capacity to, to identify on a human level. Are there times when you have to dig in and fighting words are called for? Yeah. The morning after the 2016 election, I think like all of us, you know, we stayed up late into the night, yeah. had a hard time going to sleep. And I think at 5 a.m., you know, I was up and um, I emailed my staff and I said, 10 a.m., Zoom call. We were all over the country. We need to check in. 
And the thing that occurred, the thing that I realized in processing it with one of my wonderful team there was that before that time, I never thought that we had to make nonviolence an explicit condition of dialogue. I sort of assumed, like, really? I have to, like, put a no-gun label? Right, right. Right? But now it's like, you know, one of our rules, in addition to, like, you know, confidentiality and stepping up, stepping back, all that sort of stuff, is, you know, we're not going to resort to violence. Like, Jesus, like, we really, we got to that point. But that's, that's you know, it became clear to me, like, that's where we were at. There's, there's a part of me, and I think a lot of us who are in the civil discourse sort of world, that are worried that, you know, is this just basically bringing a knife to a gunfight? Right. However, I think that the rules, I would say, learning and studying the civil rights movement and studying nonviolent protest movements are when people's physical safety is on the line. So then violence, fighting may well be called for. Self-defense. Yeah, Self-defense, right? I mean, we're Jews. We're not, we, right. we're, we, our tradition right. does not teach turning over, rolling over, That's and right. just you know, right. dying. And discerning where... It may be possible for nonviolent sacrifice to be more effective. That was Dr. King's genius, but it takes a willingness to put your body in the line. That all can be going on too. And then there's a whole lot of other places that are not sites of violence that are opportunities for talking and listening and humanizing. And we have to do the talking, human, you know, listening and humanizing work. That has to happen. And we have to be prepared for the moments when that's going to be insufficient. It's Rashi on Jacob when he's going to meet, when he's coming back to meet Esau, right? The famous line that, right? That he feared greatly and it troubled him. He feared that he would be killed and it troubled him that he might come to exercise violence. But you have to be prepared for both. And so I think we have to really discern where are the times to take action. And I don't mean necessarily, God forbid, that like we're actually taking up arms, but where you put your body on the line and where you use strong language and where it's not a time for dialogue. And where and when can we reach out and where and when do we dial down the anger and actually, you know, I, I've become very fond lately, I mean, maybe the new Star Wars movie's coming out, of, of thinking of the scene in the first Star Wars movie between, you know, Ben Kenobi and Darth Vader, right? And Ben Kenobi gives, gives himself up preface by the line, you know, you can't win because if you, if you strike me down, I'll be more powerful right. than you can possibly imagine. There's something very Christian in that, obviously, but there's also something about, like, can you be, can we be the kind of people who would be willing to be open-hearted and disarming of others? Are there times where that can work? And I just think we have to just be attentive to Ask that. Ask the question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have we, in your career... Have we crossed the line to the point where you've actually contemplated the validity and the appropriateness of the stronger version? Yeah, well, I think I think what happened um, when the when the travel ban, when the Muslim ban first was announced, and people just flocked to airports mm-hmm. was a manifestation of that. There was a lot of talk when the administration was first getting organized about, you know, are there going to be essentially brown shirts going around and rounding right. up people and deporting right. them? And would we put ourselves into the breach? And I think those are, you know, appropriate things to contemplate. You know, are we at the level of a civil war yet? No, we're, we're, I think we're still pretty far yeah. from that. But <laughs> I, have, uh, I have one more question 
uh, it's a bit roundabout, so bear with me. I read uh, one of your High Holiday sermons online in which you uh, quoted the Big Lebowski <laughs> and you referred to Paul Newman. The, the gist of your sermon for Rosh Hashanah seven, ten years ago. Yeah. I'm not sure it's been a while. Yeah. So you're not... You're not ten uh, years ago, right. You're not going to have to memorize, have memorized it and be able to... I remember, the, I, I remember the sermon, yeah. <laughs> so, right. You know the guy who wrote it. So the gist was, along the lines of one of your previous comments just now, that one of the powers of the question is that you elicit your interlocutor's story. And when you elicit that story, you begin to relate to one another in very powerful ways. Only in passing in that sermon did you also point out the fact, you, you illustrated it, but you didn't develop it quite as much, that both Walter, the convert to Judaism, and Paul Newman had central stories to themselves that didn't convince. So Walter wanted to claim his Judaism, but his buddy, right. the dude, says, you're not Jewish, and, right. he, and he challenged him right. on his own story. And Paul Newman really wants to be remembered for his charities, but in fact, the minute he dies, uh, it's, it's a footnote, and people remember his career. So there is, there is a different kind of violence going on, mm. which is you lay your story out, presumably you own it, you have a copyright to your story, but <laughs> then it gets out there. And once it's out there, yeah. it's ready for the appropriation or ready for the simple dismissal. We as Jews know this. I mean, we, we live well in the Christian world, but fundamentally, we understand our story to have been co-opted and really in many ways reversed mm. by Christianity. And we don't accede to it, but neither are we utterly resigned to it. So something, something complicated goes on with that kind of ownership that you can't ever really own. Yeah. But that seems to get to the heart of why you share it. Hmm. You want people to care about it, but then they care about it by taking it and doing what they want with it. That's how they care about it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they don't care about it. And then all of a sudden, it's not yours, but it was yours. It's <laughs> really interesting. Right, because I think the, the framing question of that sermon was, what do you want your story to be? Or what will your story be? Which is a good high holiday question. This is a very good holiday. Um, it was a good sermon. That's <laughs> it was to your credit. I'm, I'm deeply flattered that you would give such critical attention to my sermon. So the question there is sort of how do we live with that? And it's interesting because, right, those are both two sort of mediated figures, right? Walter is a, is a fictional character, right, right? right? So, like, I don't really care yeah. what Walter's story is, but, like, you know, it's a useful story. Newman, on the other hand, is a real person who I've met, but, who, but whose fame, like, I mean, Paul Newman of the... There's Paul Newman in the... Right, the, the, right. Right? Um, by the way, I have to interrupt you. There's a great quote by Cary Grant. You know, Cary Grant's a, a, a pseudonym. I forgot. Right, what Archibald name. Leach, I think. Yeah, there you go. And he's and in an interview, he said, you know, everybody wants to be Cary Grant. Even I want to be. Cary Grant. <laughs> right. So everyone wants to be Paul Newman, even right. Paul Newman, right. Right. or right. not, as it were. Right. So anyway, I interrupted. Go ahead. Um, there's two Paul Newmans. Right. There's so the there, 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 there's the Paul Newman who exists in our sort of constructed imagination or collective imagination. And then there's the Paul Newman that, you know, Joanne Woodward knows, you know, when, uh, they're, when, the they're, when they, she wakes up in the morning. Right. And in a certain sense, like, again, you know, all of us probably have some level of that. There's who, right. there's what our story is out in the world that we, you know, there's a degree to which we can control it. And then there's a lot that we can't. Right. So one answer would just be Reinhold Niebuhr and Serenity Prayer and, you know, 
control the things let that you can you and let go of the stuff right, that you right, can't, right? right? And, and give me the wisdom to discern between the two. And that's probably some very, very good advice. Yeah. <laughs> and it, but I think that that's gotten even more complicated and fraught and difficult, again, in the highly mediated age that we live in, right, where any of us who have teenagers or preteens are dealing with, you know, and we ourselves, right? Yes. I, I deal with this all the time. I've got a Facebook following, or whatever, right. right? And who I am in that environment, and who I am, you know, and and, and you know, it's, and it's interesting moving into a position of authority now. The first time now, as you know, students, I, I'm in a, you know, in a position of, of institutional authority in a different way than I have been previously. One of the things you know this very well, is that when you are in a position of authority like that, you don't have the luxury anymore of thinking out loud right. with very many people, right? Um, you have to be very careful with your utterances because people take what you say seriously. Right. Would that our president understood that. Most presidents have gotten that. And I do worry about the violence that's being done to language and thought as a result. But assuming we survive this and that civilization continues... Let's, let's, let's um, assume that. Yeah, inshallah. Um, so I think that all of us probably are in a different sort of age now where that line between internal and external self is one that we're, we're experiencing even more on a daily basis, which leads me, in conclusion, to, I think, the importance, the increased importance of having communities of people where you are face-to-face and where you are able to give a, get a charitable hearing mm-hmm. um, from others and experience that because we can't constantly live on the, at this level of tension of constantly minding that line. The charitable spirit being the one that is willing to take you on your own terms. And just listen. And take yeah. it as it is, yeah. All right. Well, that's worth working towards. Thank you for doing your part. Thank and, you very much. Uh, it's taking great. the time to talk with us. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.